morning, y'all. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. And if we haven't had the chance to meet, man, I encourage you to come find me after service. I'd love an opportunity to meet you. Um, always looking forward to getting to know people here better. Um, and I am not great at it. And so if you come find me, that will make it a lot easier. Promise I'm weird, probably weirder than you. And so I'd like to jump into our text this morning pretty quickly because it picks up directly where we left off last week. And just to catch you up, we've been following this Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah. And to put it lightly, this guy has been on this like massive winning streak. He's performed miracles. He raised a little boy from the dead. Last week, we read about this mountaintop showdown he had against this mad king, Ahab, and 450 false prophets for this false god named Baal. And in this showdown, God showed up in this dramatic pillar of fire and revealed himself to the people, and they all fell on their faces in worship. And then God, or and then Elijah slays all 450 of these false prophets, and it seems like everything is headed towards this happy ending of Israel recommitting themselves to God. It's just like win after win and miracle after miracle for Elijah. Like this guy's just a bona fide winner. And this is where we pick up the story as this King Ahab, who was a witness to these things, returns home with his tail between his legs to tell his wife what has happened. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 19, picking up at verse 1. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, if you didn't know or you weren't here last week, Jezebel, the king's wife, is the one who instituted this worship of this false god named Baal. And so these 450 prophets were her closest friends. They ate dinner together every day. They partied together. They spent significant amount of time together. And so her 450 best friends just got killed by Elijah. So it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, saying she is going to kill him. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Man, sometimes the Bible can be really obscure and hard to understand and hard to relate to. You have burning bushes and men wrestling with angels and these massive floods and talking snakes. And sometimes it's like, what am I supposed to take away from this? Like, how can I connect to this? And then other times, like this passage right here, it just feels like the Bible hits the nail on the head of human existence. Like one minute, Elijah is standing on the mountain in victory, and then the next minute he's broken, he wants to die, he can barely get out of bed, and then he sit, ends up setting up shop in this dark cave. 
If you've spent any time on this planet, you likely don't need me to explain to you what that feels like. Done. I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, Elijah is exhibiting suicidal behavior here. Let's just call it what it is. Now, he wouldn't know to call it that. But if someone today were speaking the way he is speaking and isolating the way he's isolating, we would be deeply concerned and we would be deeply concerned because we see this everywhere. We know what this looks like. Suicide rates are the highest they have ever been in America. According to the CDC website, aside from accidental injuries, suicide is the leading cause of death in the United States for people between the ages of 10 and 35. This is not an ancient world issue. This is an active issue. People are struggling and badly. The likelihood of you or someone close to you being affected by suicide is almost guaranteed. And the church is not exempt from these issues. And I think the more we stigmatize them and refuse to talk about them and pretend they don't exist, the more dangerous they become. Where Elijah is right now mentally seems to be a picture of how so many people in our world are walking through life, even some people who are trying to follow Jesus. And it's a terrifying reality check because Eliza was just in one of the best emotional and spiritual places he'd ever been just days ago. Like Elijah used to be a name that struck fear into the hearts of his enemies, but now this woman Jezebel has struck fear into the heart of Elijah. And Elijah used to be a name associated with life. He raised a little boy back to life through the power of God, but he's just associated himself with death, wanting to die. I mean, sometimes it just feels like that's how life goes. You know, some, you, you make this decision to follow Jesus, and it's just like you think it's going to be this upward, continual, rising trajectory, but then you come to find out it's more like this crazy, scribbled, unpredictable mess. And I think the word that best describes what Elijah and much of the world is feeling right now would be the word despair. Despair. And, and what is despair? Well, despair is an emotional state of sadness plus weakness plus loneliness. All of these things together create despair. Now, now you know sadness, and you know that sadness on its own isn't despair. You can experience the sadness of loss, or the sadness of defeat, or the sadness of struggle, or just the sadness of sadness. Like, you likely experience some measure of sadness every single day, but you don't experience despair every day. But then you mix that sadness with weakness, and the severity heightens. I feel no measure of happiness in my life, and I'm powerless to do anything about it. I'm not strong enough to fix it. I can't bring her back. I can't stop him from this destructive behavior. I can't get my heart to feel what my head knows is true like I'm weak. But you know, as weak and sad as I am, if I have someone around me, if I'm not alone, if I have people to help me and build me up, then at least I have something. And that's probably why we put so much pressure on one another to show up. Loneliness is a killer, and so we get in the habit of using other people to fight our loneliness, put pressure on our spouse to make us happy, put pressure on our kids to perform at a certain level or achieve something, put pressure on our friends or family to always be checking in on us or making sure we're always invited or included to everything that happens. But then we come to this moment where we find out that the world doesn't revolve around us. 
And then over the course of our life, we will learn that there are some things that just no human being can help you out with, even if they wanted to. And it's in those moments when you have no one, or even worse, when you have people, but they will not or cannot do anything for you, that's when you add in that loneliness to sadness and weakness that the full weight of despair sets in. And it's a lot. And even more dangerous than just the emotional toll that despair takes on your life is the fact that frequently our despair will take control of the steering wheel of our life and start to control our behavior as well. Man, if you read Elijah's story, Elijah followed God time and time again. He was obedient time and time again. Whatever God instructed, Elijah followed, but we just read that Elijah ended up in a cave. God didn't instruct Elijah to go to a cave. God didn't lead Elijah into a cave. What led Elijah into that cave? His despair. See, that's what despair does. It leads us away from the will of God and it leads us into whatever caves we hide ourselves in. And man, you've got a cave. We've all got our cave that we run to when sadness and weakness and loneliness, when despair sets in. You have a cave and maybe you've just never acknowledged it. Where do you run when you feel despair setting in? Maybe your cave is food. I'm going to eat my feelings. I'm going to eat my way out of this mess. I already feel like garbage. I might as well add pizza or ice cream or whatever my other favorite food is on top of it. I know it won't really make me feel any better, maybe for a second, but things can't get any worse. Maybe your cave is your phone or some other device. I, I, just, I don't want to have to think about anything right now. Like I, just, I, I want this day to be over. I don't want to think about work or my issues or people, and so I'm just going to start mindlessly scrolling or playing a game or watching a show, and if I just scroll hard enough and long enough, then eventually this day will just finally be over. Maybe your cave is alcohol or nicotine or some other drug. Like, I, I know they don't work. I know it's just a temporary fix, but it's just like, I feel like I can't breathe. It feels like I'm about to crawl out of my skin and I can't handle this feeling. I can't handle myself. I just want to forget about it even for a second. I just want to be numb, even for just a little bit. Maybe your cave is sex or porn. If I can just feel good for a little bit, and maybe I'll forget about how bad I feel all the time. If someone finds me desirable, then I'll throw myself at them because that makes me valuable and worth something. If not that, I'll just live vicariously through these people on a screen, even though I know how toxic and harmful and dangerous it is, even though I know how much it's killing me, it's just one more time. Maybe your cave isn't a behavior at all. Maybe your cave is an emotion. Maybe your cave is anger. The world's out of control, and like everything's out of control, and if I just get angry enough, then maybe that'll change things. Never mind that we're lashing out at the people we love the most. Never mind that we're breaking things. Never mind that it doesn't actually make you feel any better. Or maybe your cave is self-deprecation. Trash. Always been trash. I have nothing to offer anyone. I have no skills. I have no talents. I'm ugly. I'm useless. I mess everything up. I'll never accomplish anything significant. I'll never be the parent or spouse or friend that I want to be. I don't even know why people tolerate me. Where do you go? Like, where do you run to? And if you think I'm standing up here judging you, I promise you I'm not that entire list of caves comes from me. 
Every single one of those caves is either a part of my past or still calls to me in my present. I'm not standing up here holier than thou. I'm standing up here worse than thou. Believe that. I know all about these caves. And I know how much it hurts to be stuck in one of them. And as a follower of Jesus, what makes it worse is that you know God hasn't instructed it. You know that God doesn't desire this for your life. You know it's not a part of your plan, that his plan for you, you know it's killing you, and yet there we sit in the dark, clutched to our despair. And here's a terrifying reality if you're a parent. If you're not careful, you might pass down the property rights for your caves down to your kids. As they observe you and they're always observing you, you might be creating a path that leads them into your caves and they maybe are the same caves that your parents passed along down to you. We call those generational curses. And they were never God's will for your parents or for you or for your kids, but despair. And despair turns a person into someone they're not. And so where's God in all of this? Where is God as Elijah sits in this cave he was never supposed to go to? passage goes on in verse 9. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah's sitting in the dark, he's sitting in his cave, sitting in a place that God never intended for him to be, and God reveals himself to Elijah and asks a very simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And we know that God knows everything, and so God's not asking this question because he's confused. God's asking this question for Elijah's sake. Elijah, what led you here? How how did you end up here? What are you doing here? And Elijah responds, God, I've been serving you faithfully, and I'm the only one left. And everyone else has either been killed or they've fallen away from the faith, and so now I'm the only one left. I'm by myself, and everyone and everything is against me, God. You hear Elijah's prayer? God, I'm sad, I'm weak, and I'm alone. That's what I'm doing here. Have you prayed this prayer? God, I'm sad, God, I'm weak, God, I'm alone. God responds to Elijah in the dark, and it said, and he said, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responded again, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God calls Elijah out of the cave. Elijah, go out of the cave and go meet me on the mountain. And what's Elijah do? Stays put. 
He doesn't move. He disregards God's command a second time. And then as Elijah still standing in his cave, the Bible says a powerful wind strong enough to break the rocks into pieces passed by. And then there was an earthquake and then there was this plume of fire and they all shake the mountain and they're all very dramatic and they'd all be the obvious way for God to show up. And yet we read that God was not in the wind or in the earthquake or the fire. I can almost see Elijah standing in his cave like trying to look out and waiting for God to do something obvious. You know how much easier it would be to fight sadness and weakness and loneliness if God just made himself abundantly obvious to us all the time? If God showed up the way non-believers demand that he show up, if God reveals himself to me in the flesh, right here, right now, I'll fall on my knees and worship him. That'd be nice and easy, wouldn't it? Don't you know there's no intimacy or love in that? So intimacy and love are never in the easy and obvious. Intimacy and love are never in the easy and obvious. You go on an amazing honeymoon or anniversary trip or really hot date with your spouse and like, yeah, man, that's great, but that's not a marriage. That's just a moment. And beautiful moments, they're beautiful, but, but they don't build intimacy. And you can't build a real relationship on those easy and obvious moments, just like you can't build a relationship with God trying to live spiritually from Sunday to Sunday or conference to conference or mountaintop moment to mountaintop moment. Yeah, those moments may be beautiful, but they don't build intimacy. You know what a real marriage looks like? What well, looks like the vows that you say. You remember those? For richer, for poorer, and sickness. And health. Now, someone who officiates weddings, let me tell you a secret. The for richer and in health parts of the vows, they're just add-ons. They're just throwaways. You don't need to say you'll be around if your spouse is rich and healthy. Of course you will. Everyone will. That's easy and that's obvious. But to say that you'll stick around even if your spouse is poor and sick, Man, now you're getting somewhere in terms of love and intimacy. Because you see, that's what love is. Even if there were no dates, even if there were no vacations, even if there were no Sunday services, and even if there were no powerful moving conferences, I'm still going to be here. Even if they strip everything else away from us and it's just me and you, I'm not going anywhere. That's intimacy. But you can't build that in the easy and the obvious, and so try as he might, Elijah isn't going to find God in the wind, in the earthquake, in the fire. But then what's the verse say? It says, then Elijah, inside his cave still, hears the sound of a low whisper. And what does Elijah do? He follows the sound. And I think sometimes God works in whispers because what do you have to do when someone whispers to you? You have to lean in to hear what they're saying. And I think sometimes God is inviting us to lean in. So Elijah follows the sound, and I love Elijah. I couldn't relate to him any more than this. He's as human as they come because Elijah still doesn't completely obey God. The verse doesn't say he leaves the cave. It says he stands at the entrance of the cave. Like, I'm going to keep one foot in just in case. And then God asks him the same question again. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers God word for word with the same answer he gave him the first time. And I'm sure Elijah was thinking like, God, did you not hear me the first time? Maybe you didn't hear me. But to me, it feels more like God is saying, no, Elijah, I don't think you really heard me the first time. What are you doing here? If you're a Christian and like me, you found yourself in caves from time to time, I'd almost guarantee that you've had moments in those caves where it was like all at once you looked up and you realized you were in a place you never wanted to be. And you probably asked yourself the question, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? This isn't me. This isn't who I want to be. This isn't who, what am I doing here? Let me just lovingly suggest to you that maybe you were not the one asking yourself that question. Maybe God was. And man, maybe you're in a cave right now and you don't know how you got there. It's a never a place you wanted to be, but you feel that question in your heart. What am I doing here? You know why I love this story? And this is probably my favorite passage in the Bible aside from Jesus' story. This story with Elijah. I love it so much. Because even though Elijah ended up in a place that God never intended him to go and never instructed him to go, God still followed Elijah right into that cave and sat with him in the dark. Elijah thought he was done. Man, I'm sad, I'm weak, I'm alone, I don't even want to live anymore. God, I'm done. But God stays with Elijah the entire time and says, but I'm not done with you, Elijah. If you go and read the rest of this passage, God is going to invite Elijah right back into his will where Elijah belongs. And God's going to let Elijah know, hey, you're going to go and you're going to meet up with 7,000 other people who are still following me and are facing the same threat as you. Like, you're not alone. You're not the only one, Elijah. Elijah, trust me, buddy. I've got this and I've got you. And he hits Elijah with this powerful truth that I think each and every one of us needs to hear This morning, whether you're in this place now or whether you're going to experience it at some point in your life, but the powerful truth is this, you are not as alone as you feel right now. Right now, you might feel alone. You might feel like everything is against you. You might feel like no one could ever understand the depths of your despair and heartache, and you might feel like you've got nothing left in the tank. And I just want to let you know, you need to know God is sitting right in that cave with you. There's not a cave dark enough that he wouldn't follow you into. He's the God who leaves the 99 for the one. And in your cave diving, wandering moments when you are the one, you need to know that he is right there with you. And you also need to know that there are at least 7,000 other of us who, who are fighting the same fight. You're not by yourself. I'll steal Elijah's words in this. I, if even I only, am right there with you. Life is hard whether you're a Jesus follower or not. And I need to remind you this morning, and there are moments when I'm going to need you to remind me that the cave is not where your story ends. The cave's not where your story ends. You know what's amazing about the Bible? There are all these parallels and cross-references and connections all over the place. And if you look in John chapter 20, a woman named Mary Magdalene, maybe you've heard her name, a woman named Mary Magdalene wanders towards what is akin to a dark cave three days after they buried Jesus' body in there. 
And as she approaches this cave, she notices that the massive stone has been rolled away. And so she runs like crazy to go and tell the disciples. And then the disciples, Peter and John, like sprint to the cave. And then the disciples get to the tomb and they peer into the dark and both of them see the linens that Jesus' body was wrapped in. But he's not there anymore and the linens are folded neatly and they're laying where Jesus' body used to be. And that's amazing. And then they step away and Mary, she peers into the cave, but she sees angels in there. And as she stands crying at the entrance of this dark cave, just like Elijah did, the angels ask her a question. Why are you crying? And it feels so similar to the question God asked Elijah. They ask her why she's crying, and she says, my Savior's gone, and I don't know where they've taken him. And if you know Mary Magdalene's story, you know that this is a woman who is no stranger to the dark. Mary has spent her fair share of time in caves. The Bible says she was possessed by a demon. She had a deep darkness attached to her. And then she met Jesus. And Jesus saw through all of her mess. And Jesus didn't look at her like she was crazy. Jesus didn't look at her like she was evil. Jesus is the only one who really saw her. And he saved her. But now she's broken because she thinks he's gone and she thinks the story's over. And you know, I always wondered why it is that Mary saw angels in the tomb. You know, Peter and John, they were Jesus' disciples, but all they saw were clothes. But then Mary looks in and she sees angels. And I think it's because those of us who are the most familiar with the dark are often the fastest to recognize the light. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus who's been delivered from deep darkness and bondage and despair, it's very likely that you are quicker to see the light because you've been delivered from the dark and so you know what that light looks like. You hunger for it, you crave it, you've seen it, you know what it can do. And so in her tears and heartbreak, man, Mary turns away from the cave and Mary is the very first person to bump into the resurrected Jesus. She literally bumps into him. And she doesn't even recognize him through her tears or crying. She thinks he's a gardener. And Jesus asks her the same question. Why are you crying? You see, Jesus knows that the story isn't over. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows the Christian faith is going to explode all over the world. He knows he's going to ascend into heaven and send the Holy Spirit. And God's presence is going to be dwelling inside of us and Jesus knows he's going to triumphantly return in victory one day and make everything as it's supposed to be. He knows all of that, but Mary, Mary doesn't. All she sees is pain. All she can see is the loss. All she sees is her brokenness in front of her. But then the Bible says that Jesus says her name, Mary. And as soon as Mary hears her name, as soon as Mary hears her Savior say her name, everything changes and the doubt and the fear and the brokenness and the despair is gone in an instant when she hears her Savior call her name. Man, this morning you might be in a cave. You might be in the dark. And deep despair may have its hooks deep into your soul today. And I just want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that there's a God who knows your name and he knows your story and he's whispering you. 
And it may not be in the big obvious place where you think you're going to find him, but if you just slow down enough and lean in, you'll hear him. And this God is not done with you yet. And through his blood, sadness and weakness and loneliness is replaced with joy and strength and love. Your cave is not where your story ends. If you'll invite him in, your cave will be the most powerful and redemptive place of your life. That's where God shines the brightest. And just as Jesus walked out of that dark, empty tomb, he is inviting you by name right now to join him in his wondrous light. The question is, will we lean in to listen and will we follow his voice? I'm going to pray, but first I'm going to invite the worship team up here. We're just going to sing one more song. And my encouragement to you this morning is as we sing this song, no matter whether you are in the darkest cave you've ever been in in your life or you are on the highest mountain you've ever been in in your life, I pray that you ask God to make himself so obvious to you right now that whether you're in victory or great loss, that he's standing with you in that place and you're not alone and you've never been alone a moment in your life. And as we sing these words, I, I, I challenge you not to just sing them, not just to take part in this moment, but to sing these words to the creator of the universe who's calling to you right now, wherever you are. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess my own shortcomings. I confess the ways in which I have failed time and time again. I confess the ways in which I continue to wander in and out of these caves that I know can't fulfill me, that I know will hurt me in the end, God, and I fail to live up to what I want for my life and what you want for my life. I'm so thankful that you don't abandon me and that I can never outrun you, but that you follow me to these deep, dark places and you sit with me in my mess calling me to something better. Thank you so much for letting me see your bright light, God, that the deep darkness and moments of my life that you've delivered me from, that I can look back at those. Even when I didn't see it in the moment, that I can look back at the darkest moments of my life and see that you were there every single step of the way. Help me remember that as I continue to struggle and as I fail and I'm broken. And God, as we live in a society where pain and despair are so evident, and so powerful and have such control over our society. God, I pray that when people look at this community of people, this population of people here in this room and watching online, that when they look at us, they see that even in deep darkness, light is available and then it transforms in a way we can't even begin to comprehend. Use this community to draw other people to your kingdom, God. Allow us to lean in and hear your voice. We love you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name.